The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. That's right. This is pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. It's pretty cool. The Lord has done good things. He's done great things, as we've sung this morning. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 9, 14. Mark 9, 14. We pick up where we left off last week in our series called, Who is This Messiah? Who is this Messiah? We're working our way through the latter half of Mark, and so it's only appropriate that we were in Mark 9, 1 through 13 last week, and so where do we pick up this week? Verse 14, right? It doesn't matter where we meet, we're just going to continue to work our way through uh, God's word uh, together. You know what I learned this week? I learned a lot of things this week, but uh, just kind of a random tidbit. I was talking to uh, a friend here and that uh, we have in New Braunfels, of all places, we have in New Braunfels a former winner of the world's strongest man competition. Who knew? I mean, it's not surprising. We're a city full of like big, burly, beefy German dudes, right? And so apparently we have a former winner. I didn't, I didn't know that. Maybe, maybe you all knew that, but I did not, but... I was kind of surprised, and uh, as I was preparing for this, and it just, it just came uh, to mind here, just a great illustration, but think about that guy for a moment. Think about, you know, whether that guy, or just think about a strong man. Think about a man who, uh, you know, has big, bulging muscles, and a friend, or maybe even his mom, at some point, probably said to him, you're the strongest person ever. You should go try out for one of those shows, right? That, that world's strongest uh, guy competition. So his mom, he, he goes then and, and he competes and guess what, he, he, he wins. And the judge conti- uh, confirms really what the mom said. He is the strongest man on the earth. And his ability was proven through those events. You know, we've seen them, right? Where they're pulling semis, right? They're pulling semis behind them or pulling it this way. They're, they're carrying refrigerators on their back. They're lifting big trees and logs or that what they call the giant farmer uh, walk. I was doing some research. There's this giant farmer walk where they're carrying these like almost 1,000 pound weights in either hand like they're just suitcases, you know? Just like walking down the street, 1,000 pounds here. Like they, their ability, their strength is proven through these events. But as impressive as these feats of strength are, they are really docile compared to the power of our Messiah. And I'm not talking about physical strength, I'm just talking about pure divine strength. Do you remember where we've been these last few weeks as we got back into Mark? First, we saw uh, Peter confess Jesus as the Messiah. He confessed him as the Christ, as the champion, as the long-awaited Messiah, the king ruler of all the earth. And then in the, pre- in the passage right after that, that title is confirmed as the Father shows up as Jesus takes his disciples right where we were last week on Mount Hermon and Jesus is shown, he radiates in divine light. The Father then confirming it with uh, Moses and Elijah showing up as representatives of the law and prophets and all pointing saying, yes, this man is the long-awaited Messiah. And today... 
Today, Jesus proves his capability as that long-awaited Messiah. Peter confesses it, the Father confirms it, and now Jesus demonstrates just how powerful he is. It's, it's interesting here because as he leaves the brilliance of the glory on the mountain, he now comes back into this town, back into the brokenness of the earth. Do you want to read it with me? Shall we look at it? Let's go. If, look in your Bible at Mark 9, 14. I want to read the story for us because I think we'll be fascinated today. Hear now God's word. It starts here, Mark 9, verse 14. It says this, And when they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can? All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why can we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word for God's people. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? A fascinating story that, that really takes us to, the, to, to the, the, the pit of compassion as we are, are, are putting ourselves in this father's shoes as we see the kid and it brings us up into the glory of Christ and his power. And you know what? I would have loved to just been a person in that crowd, wouldn't you? You know, like there's a whole crowd, uh, they're all arguing, it's kind of like uh, maybe a riot's about to happen, there's a bunch of people, the disciples are here, and then all the scribes uh, are, are there arguing, and, and, and there's just a whole lot of commotion happening. I, I might like to be one of the disciples, but I would take, I'd just be a person in a crowd, really. Just someone there. But you know what, when we're in the crowd, it's easy to get distracted, isn't it? It's easy to get lost in the, uh, in, in the hype. It's easy to just kind of like just get caught up in the waves of everything that's happening. You're like, oh, well, okay, and our attention is drawn somewhere. It's kind of like when we're, when we're stuck in traffic, right? 
I-35 is increasingly becoming like a sardine can, isn't it? We get stuck in traffic and, and sometimes we're stuck and we're looking over because there's an accident on the other side, right? And everybody over here is just doing, you know, that, that thing like, what's going on over there? And as we do that, what, uh, what inevitably happens on our side of the track? Another collision, right? Everybody's looking at the collision on the other side and we get distracted and we cause another collision. And I don't want that to happen as we are in this passage. Because uh, unfortunately, with a passage like this, there are some distractions that happen. We get caught up and we get looking at some things that uh, divert our attention away from the truth. And so what I want to do for us this morning as we uh, work our way through the verses, I want to talk about two distractions, some road hazards to keep you informed and help you avoid them and then draw out two truths from it. Can we do that? Let's look at distraction number one. Keep your hands on the wheel, though. Okay, eyes forward. But here's distraction number one, and it's this. Demons have more power. Or as, uh, let me say it again. Demons have power equal to God. A distraction number one is we can read a passage like this and be distracted and conclude wrongly conclude that demons have power equal to God. And it's concluded because of what the demon is doing to the child and then even Jesus' words in the last verse of this being some kind of special demon. And so again here, uh, walk back through the story with me. Jesus and the three have come down off the mountain now and they rejoin the other nine disciples. They're there back at the base. We don't necessarily know. Maybe they're back in Caesarea Philippi. It's unnamed here, but there is this great crowd. The scribes are there, and they are, look, when Jesus shows up, what does it say in verse 15? That they are greatly amazed. It's like they're having this argument. You know, it's like some, some uh, boys on the playground that are arguing back and forth, and then the big brother shows up who has all the answers, right? Like, whoa, he's here. He's here. They're greatly amazed. And Jesus then, in the way that only he can do, he's like, what's all this commotion about? What are you arguing about with them? He's been in different arguments. He's been confronted by the scribes, those that were supposed uh, experts in the Old Testament law. He knows how futile arguing is with these people. And as he is, uh, as he steps into the situation, then out of the crowd, kind of popping out, this dad comes and he says, teacher, I'm what they're arguing about. It's my situation, right? He said, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And the dad then goes on to explain this horrible situation from his son, or that's happening in his son. Every parent in here is reading this and just cringing, right? Just cringing as, as it's explained as what he did. Seizes him, verse 18 says, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid, he's having a seizure. It's, it's horrible. He's not able to do anything about it. He's, he goes on, he says, when he's talking, this happened from childhood, and this often casts him into the fire. You can imagine the fire is where they would heat their house, where they would heat up their food, and you're just in the kitchen making some food, and this, you know, this comes upon him, and then next thing you know, you're having to pull your son out of the fire. You're going down to the well to draw some water, and spirit comes upon him, and you're down fishing at the sea and what was just supposed to be a normal day all of a sudden turns into a massive emergency. The dad is desperate. All this is gruesome. It's terrible. 
The demon has an incredible ability to overwhelm this child. And we read these things and our heartstrings are tugged. We can begin to think that the demonic realm is more powerful than it really is. It's not to say that the demonic realm is powerless. That would be a mistake as well. But I would submit to you that in our victim-empowered world, we make Satan and our sin more powerful and we diminish the strength of God. But beloved, this is a distraction. This is a distraction. We're not helped by it because we, we, we listen to Christian radio. Um, and Kate and I were actually just talking recently about some teaching that he heard and, and the whole uh, way that it was being communicated was that, uh, that you know, God is sad about our sin. Just making God, uh, using language to make God uh, sound very weak and kind of helpless, but yet using very strong language, very victorious language about our sin, about uh, about the enemy coming to steal, kill, and destroy us. As if there is a stronghold of sin. But let me tell you, believer, no, Jesus has a stronghold on you. Is a stronghold on you. This is not some equal battle of good versus evil, of the dark side versus the, uh, of the, of the light side, or of yin and yang. That's not how this thing works in this world, beloved. The victory's already been won. Jesus has already won. We know the end of the story, and so don't get distracted by the unordinary power of this demonic spirit, nor make more or get hung up on what Jesus, when he's saying this kind, it's a distraction to divert our attention away from the true source of power. The second distraction, then, as we work our way through this verse, is that God's ability to act is dependent upon our faith. We would be distracted as we would read this and we would conclude that God's ability to act is dependent on our faith. We get hung up on this, on this phrase when, he's, when he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And so we read this and other accounts of Jesus and we can wrongly conclude. We can get distracted by what Jesus is truly meaning so-called faith healers, those TV preachers, those pay-per-view circus revivals that you can buy tickets to, they're notorious for this. But so are whole like denominations causing these fatal car crashes among God's people, leaving people under enormous guilt when a child dies, when the cancer doesn't go away, when they remain paralyzed. They leave people extremely discouraged because marriage is hard. Because the work promotion doesn't come because you fail a class and it's like, well, you didn't have enough faith. God didn't come through on your behalf. He didn't hear your prayers because you did did not have enough faith. Beloved, don't buy into this. It turns faith into a work. It turns faith into a work that that supposedly would earn God's favor and, and would overpower him to move as if the quality or the maturity of our faith is what God is just waiting for. And if it isn't, Mature enough, if it isn't strong enough, if you don't have a quality enough faith, then I guess what? You're stuck. You're just stuck in your circumstances. But let me tell you something. God is not just sitting around in heaven waiting for us to get our faith act together. He's not just sitting around up there that, that, you know, that he's just waiting and he's gonna react to our action. No, beloved, God is always proactive. He is always proactive, and so don't be distracted by the lights and sound of these roadside attractions here. God is not dependent upon anyone. He's not dependent upon anyone. 
But here are two truths. These are distractions, so we just have to kind of get them out there and now come to these two corresponding truths that really uh, are the point of this passion. Uh, these distractions are intended to divert our attention, but here are the truths. The first one is this. The first truth, Jesus is powerful apart from me. Here's truth number one. Jesus is powerful apart from me. Let's start at the beginning, or the, let's go to the end here, rather. Not at the beginning. We saw how it began, but what, how does it end in verse 25? Jesus, with a word, right? With a word, casts out this demon. Look, in Jesus, he sees that the crowd's coming. They're coming running together, right? He's kind of pulled this man off to the side. It's happening, and now the crowd's just like coming upon him. So just real quick, he gets his act together here, and he, with a word, rebukes it. You mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And that demon comes out completely and forever. Completely and forever. Did Jesus need some help in accomplishing the wishes of the Father? Absolutely not. He knew. He was there. He came off that mountain. He came to this city with an appointment. This is an unfair fight. Jesus is powerful over the demonic realm. He's powerful apart from us. He's a par- powerful over the demonic realm, and he is powerful even despite our unbelief. Even despite our unbelief. I love the, the plea of the Father at the end of verse 22, right? I've come, he's explained the situation, uh, he's told Jesus, and now he makes this one plea. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion. Have compassion on us and help us. See, the dad's plea is a question of Jesus' ability, not of his willingness. (laughs) And don't you just love Jesus' uh, response here in verse 23? And Jesus says, if you can? You know, it's it's almost like he's surprised, maybe incredulous even, like, what do you mean, if I can? It's like, where have you been the last several years, right? Where have you, you know, like, what what do you mean? Like, sure, I guess Facebook wasn't around, so he didn't catch all the news of what Jesus has done (laughs) over the time. But he's like, what do you mean if I can? Didn't you hear the story of the the demon-possessed man in Gennesaret? Like, didn't you hear that? Didn't you hear about the thousands of people that I fed? Not once, but twice. Didn't you hear that I walked on water? That I, with a word that I calmed the storm and that I've healed whole towns, every disease and sickness, I've raised people from the dead. What do you mean if I can. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'd say if anybody can, that's a pretty solid resume. <laughs> I'd be taking my kid to Jesus if I, if, you know, if I were in this situation. And you know what? We're not unlike this father here. We, we can read the resume. We read the gospels. We know the power of God. We may have even experienced God coming through in supernatural ways being healed of diseases, of seeing finances come through. We have experienced his power just in our salvation. If you are saved today, what Christ did on your behalf to work your salvation is complete work of God. We've experienced it. We've read this, and yet we doubt it. Because we get in a situation and we think that, well, our problem seems too big. Our our situation seems impossible. We don't think that for whatever reason, even though he's had a perfect history of faithfulness, he's not going to come through this time. 
We doubt his ability to save certain types of sinners, or to heal the worst of the diseases, to mend broken relationships. We say things like, well, it's just, he's just too far gone. It's past the point of no return. It's impossible, we cry. Church, was Jesus just playing some kind of sick joke on this man? And his reply back, was he just like, just being playful? The dad, as one of the other gospels say, was on his knees begging Jesus to heal his son. Now, is, is Jesus just exaggerating when he says all things are possible for one who believes? It's not hypothetical. But what he's telling this dad and you, if you're a believer today, is this, that there is no hopeless situation in your life. All things are possible for the one who believes. There's no hopeless situation. If you are in Christ, anything is impossible because Jesus can do anything. He is the all-powerful one, and, and it's belief or it's faith is what taps us into that power. See, faith is a, a gift. What does Ephesians 2 say? It says that uh, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that a gift of God. He has given us faith, and when God gives you faith, he also gives you access. He plugs you into the power. And so I ask, like, are you plugged into Christ this morning? Are you connected to the power? Have you repented of your sin and repented of, your, of trying to do things in your own ability and saying, I know I have faith in the Christ who can and who does and who will, but we are hopeless apart from Christ. But faith is what taps us in. We are hopeless and we are powerless apart from Christ, which is our second and corresponding truth. Not only is Jesus a pow powerful apart from me, but I am powerless mm -hmm. apart from Jesus. If every person in this story demonstrates this overwhelming truth that I am powerless apart from Jesus. We see it in the, in the dad. How many doctors do you think that he's gone to? How many healers, how many religious leaders do you think that he has taken his son to? And now we joke that maybe he hadn't heard, he didn't know the resume and all that, but at least he's taken it to the disciples. He must have heard something. Now he's, he's taken it to the disciples and he strikes out with them. And now Jesus shows up. Jesus then asks that tender question in verse 21. How long? How long has this been happening to him? And the dad answers and ends with the request of the ground that we just covered. And verse 24 then is the cry of authentic faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's the cry of authentic faith that, that says, I, I have faith, but this is hard. I have faith in you, Christ, but this is overwhelming. I have faith, but I, uh, but I have a lot to bear. I don't know how you're going to come through. I don't know when you're going to come through, but I believe you can. And it is this prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Underline that if you don't have that in your Bible, but it is this humble dependent prayer that does move Jesus to action. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. In a place where you're like, I believe Christ. 
I believe you can, but help my unbelief. Help my inability. I'm powerless to do this. The dad recognizes his inability and Jesus' supreme ability to make the change he's been wanting for years. He can't do it. He is powerless. But church, is Jesus powerless? He's not. Not only do we see this in the dad, but we see it also in the son. We don't have to recount all the details, but what, we, what do we see in the son? He's utterly vulnerable. He's powerless against the onslaught of the spirit. Could not do anything. Could come at any moment until Jesus' powerful voice sent that spirit packing and Jesus' powerful hand lifted him up off the ground. Jesus, would you do that among us? Would you do that among the people of redemption, Lord? Just, just need to pray and ask you to do that. Would you do, would you do this kind of work, Lord, that we are powerless to do? Would you lift down your... your, your, your your tender hand towards the vulnerable, those whom, whom seem dead, some who are dead in their sin, would you reach down and lift them up and breathe life into them? I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Can you imagine the boys? We, don't, we just are left to imagine it. Can you imagine the vigor returning to his eyes? The control over his muscles? The weightless freedom that he's now feeling after experiencing the powerful voice and hand of the Messiah. But he is powerless apart from Jesus. The dad was, the son was, and so were the disciples. The disciples demonstrate how powerless we are. You know, it's, what's amazing to this is they've been with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, haven't they? Since the very beginning, they've been working with him. And we've even learned back in chapter six that they were given authority over the spiritual realm. Remember that? They were sent out in twos. If you go back to Mark 6, verse 7, you'll see that they were sent out by twos and, and had, a comp- had an awesome ministry among the villages. Probably lasted for a few months. And now they are, are on this side of confessing Christ. So they're in this city. They're confronted with this problem. And they are what? They are unable. Has the power left them? Are they no longer? Was that just something that they could no longer do? Well, the answer is given to them at the very end. As the boy is risen up. They go into this house. We're not told. It's just they entered the house. Okay, well, that's cool. Entered the house. And his disciples ask him privately, why, why could we not? And he gives this answer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And this answer has less to do with this being like some sort of special ops, Delta Force, demonic squad. But the power behind humble, dependent, faith-filled prayer. Don't get distracted, remember. We, like the disciples here, we often fail to understand things correctly. Jesus tells them, hey, "Hey, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. And they're like, yeah, no, you're not. That's, that's No, that's impossible. They, they fail to understand things correctly, and they also fail to act in faith correctly. They try to understand with their own reasoning. They try to act in their own power, and we do the same things, don't we? 
We try to reason our way through our problems. We try to use our like superior intellect, our rationale to solve our problems. We try to act in our own power instead of walking by faith through prayer. See, the the point of this passage is not necessarily about a special kind of demon or a special kind of prayer, but by prayer that is, or faith that is demonstrated by prayer. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And so what is a church? What is a church that, that shows the temperature of our faith? It's our prayer life. It's our prayer life that is the thermometer that shows the temperature of our faith and what increases the temperature of our faith. The sun, better, maybe I should have, who increases the temperature of our faith? It is Christ, right? The more we are in the sun, the warmer we get. The more we bask in his glory, the more we look to the sun, the warmer our faith gets. And it's situations like these, desperate situations where we must have a praying faith. We must have a praying faith. Have you ever been in a place, maybe you're in a place now where you're like, all I can do is pray. All I can do is, is pray. I, don't, I, can't, I can't change my kids. Can't change this situation. I can't, I, I, all I can do is pray. And we say it as if it's like we're standing in some sort of place of defeat. We've exhausted all of our options. We've done everything. We've looked to everything that we know to do when, beloved, this is a place of victory. This is a place of victory. We get to pray. We are plugged into the all-powerful one through our faith, by our prayers. It is not a place of defeat, but it is a place of victory. This isn't a Hail Mary, you know, like some last-second ditch. Well, I guess I'll pray. I got nothing else to do, so just like throw that 60-yard pass. If you're a Packers fan, it usually works out pretty good for you. But (laughs) this isn't a Hail Mary. Rather, it's a handoff to the one who always scores no matter where you are on the field. Prayer is saying, God, you, you have to come through. I can't do this. I'm powerless. No matter how big, no matter how small this situation is. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. It's not about some special force, but about the faith that it's required, the faith that waits, the faith that endures, the faith that is dependent. See, to admit that we are powerless is not to say that we are weak. Don't confuse the two. To admit that we are powerless is not to say that we are weak. Take this building, for example. There were many tools that were used over the course of of many weeks here that did the work to build this space. Saws that cut things, uh, screw guns that drilled things. But they were just dead weight in the back of a truck unless they were plugged in. Unless they had a power source needed to run. In John 15 verse 5, Jesus told his disciples, Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're just a power tool in a box with a dead battery. But connected to Christ, all things are possible. All things are possible. And here that's on display as they tried to cast out this, this spirit on their own ability. That's what happened. The power isn't left in. They're just trying to do it on their own. Trying to do it on our own. And how often are we guilty of this? I, I'm all the time. I was massively convicted Friday morning. 
massively convicted. I'm, I'm preparing this. I'm up early. I'm before the Lord and, and, and tired because we've been working like crazy this week. Work and work and work and meeting deadlines and, and meeting them and cleaning up and cleaning up and all that. And yet everything, everything hinged upon the inspector. everything hinged upon him. And we were waiting and there's not communication. We were trying to do things. We were trying to even like, we met him and trying to like coerce him to come. But we were doing all of our work and all of our work and all of our cleanup would have been for naught hadn't we not gotten the inspector to say, yes, you can meet in here. And as I was thinking of this, as we were waiting for the inspector to come and to hear from him on Friday, you know what I was convicted that I hadn't done much of? Pray for him. Pray that he would show up. Forgive me, Christ. We work and we work. We do good things, right? And yet we still try to do it all in our own power and we just forget to pray. As if that's like our last resort. But I pray, beloved, that we would be a church that is moving forward on our knees in humble, dependent prayer, no matter what. That we would be a church that believes in the power of prayer, not just collectively, but individually. So I ask this question, like, what about, what about your life? Is there something, you know, as you've been in this passage, that you're powerless to change? That unless God comes through, then we are through? You're powerless to change, but Jesus is not? I want to say just, we're going to close our service here now with time of worship and prayer, doing the very thing that Jesus is calling us to do. Say, anything is possible. The situation that seems impossible, the situation that seems too far gone, we are going to spend some time praying. And so what I want us to do, our worship team is going to uh, come up and we're going to sing a a song that uh, I think many of us love in here.